this is the second episode in our kitchen technology series. In the first installment, we talked about coffee filters and salt cellars. Yeah, it was really interesting to learn how a major innovation like coffee filters came about because of one person's ingenuity and also how the items on our table really speak to our social status, or at least they once did. I'd say they still do. I'd agree with you. And in today's episode, we're going to pry open the lid on a very common tool and talk about a kitchen implement that was popularized by a queen. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm doing really well, thank you. It's starting to be the end of summer. Mm -hmm. It is. We're starting to see plums and apples and all sorts of those fall harvest types of fruits come in. I love it. Me too. Yep, we're rapidly coming into the time of harvest. And for those of us who were prolific in the home gardens, not me, by the way, my brown thumb record endures. Third year in a row where I have not been able to successfully produce tomatoes. But many of us may be trying to figure out how to cope with those bounties of tomatoes and zucchinis and all all those other delicious homegrown delights. After all, there is something really special and decadent about having access to those summertime flavors even through a bleak winter's night. This year I am hoping to maybe put up some apple butter specifically with Gravenstein apples from an old orchard tree that my friends have on their property and maybe try my hand at some Indian pickles. I've got a new cookbook by the author of my favorite Indian cookbook that I used to cook from with my dad. Meanwhile, our friend Hallie is putting up what looks like a million pounds of cherry tomatoes and lemon cucumbers. I was amazed and- at that picture on social right? media. <laughs> it's like almost frightening. It was her entire um, kitchen. Is basically, it took over her entire kitchen. And the funny thing is, I know that she tried a new uh, technique this year for her planting and her gardening. The results have been amazing. I've been mulling over the concept of food preservation and mobilization. It's a topic that I know we're going to address more fully in a few weeks, but I have been ruminating on the logistics that go into feeding a group of people in action, like an army, for example. And there's an idiom that I think we all know pretty well that says an army marches on its stomach. And that is frequently attributed to either Frederick the Great or the infamous Napoleon Bonaparte. And we've actually discussed before Napoleon's contributions to gastronomy via his efforts to figure out how to feed his army more economically and expeditiously, more so than deliciously. Not only did we get margarine, we talked about this in our butter episode, as a substitute for butter, but we also got the origin of canned foods, thanks to uh, Frenchman Nicolas Appert, who called canning, quote, the fruit of my dreams, of my reflections, of my researches, end quote. So apparently I'm not the only one who likes to daydream about food. So Nicolas Appert was a late 18th century French brewer and confectioner who was imminently preoccupied with the question about how to best preserve foods. 
And as a confectioner, he already knew how to preserve all manner of fruits in honey, but he felt that the process robbed the fruit of its natural flavor. Drying foods with salt preserved something, but it also ruined its natural texture, and he said made foods more acerbic. Enter, at this point, Napoleon Bonaparte. In 1795, Bonaparte offered an award of 12,000 francs to anyone who could devise a method to preserve food. And even though he basically knew nothing about the actual science of preservation, meaning like he didn't really understand why this worked, a pair dove into the challenge. According to Consider the Fork by B. Wilson, a pair experimented with conserving fruits, vegetables, and meat stews by heating them in champagne bottles suspended in hot water baths, gradually moving towards wider necked bottles. And his results were generally positive. His peas and beans had, quote, all the freshness and flavor of freshly picked vegetables. It took some fancy calculating on my part, but I figured out that a pair's 12,000 francs that he was eventually awarded by Napoleon for his invention is the equivalent in today's dollars of $76,276.09 in the American dollar. So this is not an insubstantial award for figuring this out. A pair published a book about his work in 1810, and you'd think that he would be a major household name, but he actually died a pauper. That's sadly somewhat the end of Monsieur Appert. Months after publishing his book, literal months, not years, but mere months after his book, British merchant Peter Durand filed and received a patent for preserving foods using a basically identical method. So Appert got the money, Durand got the patent. From that point on, he was supplying rations to the Royal British Navy. And you got to remember, too, at the time for me, the Brits and the French are fighting each other all over northern Europe, all over northern France. So Durant is supplying food rations to the Royal Navy, basically having stolen a French technique for preserving food. This patent was purchased from him for a thousand pounds by English engineer Brian Donkin in 1813. Duncan and his business partners, Halls and Gamble, opened a preservatory in Bermondsey that produces foods preserved and contained in tin-coated iron containers. And these are the precursors to the canned tinned goods. We think of today, even though we may not be using tin anymore, it was a very cheap, easy tool to use. But here's the really funny, weird bit for me. <laughs> and this I did not know until I started looking into this. There was a 50-year lag between the popularization and the introduction of the tin can and the tin can opener. Before Robert Yates, a maker of surgical instruments and cutlery, got around to designing the first tool specifically made to open tin cans in 1855, people were opening their cans by using bayonets, pocket knives, or even chisels and hammers. So Yates's first design, and this was not patented, this is just evidence of the first effort to create a tool specifically for this, was very crude. It was a claw-like lever attached to a wooden handle, and I think you basically were supposed to hack your way into the can. It was somewhat effective. It gave way to other designs. The first patented can opener was the 1858 opener invented by Ezra J. Warner of Waterbury, Connecticut, and it is described in Charles Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things as part bayonet, part sickle. Then you basically drove a small blade into the top of the can and ripped it open. And I'm shuddering, literally shuddering, thinking of all those sharp edges to the can. I mean, canned foods were dangerous. 
but trying to open one, you like risked your life to do that. And it, it just also amazes me how slowly innovation came, given how widespread canned goods are. And we're going to totally talk about this again another time because the food culture of canned foods is vast. And I just wanted to focus today on the technology of it. So 1868 saw a very short-lived innovation using a key to roll a strip of metal off the top of the can. And this turned out to be totally an ideal method for rectangular cans, like sardine cans. But for things that were cylindrical, it was a nightmare. You would only ever get the can part of the way opened. But ultimately, some relief came in 1870 when the design of a can opener with a cutting wheel that we turn around a can's rim was patented by American inventor William W. Lyman with a small modification to that design done by Star Can Opener Company in 1925. And that added a serrated rotation wheel to the mechanism. So that's basically the mechanism that we see today. The two wheels turning, one of them has a serrated edge that digs into the can. So you get more of that smooth cut the first electric can opener, still using the wheel mechanism that we're talking about, was first introduced in December 1931. And our truly most modern can openers, they operate by using a side opening mechanism, and that only hit the scene in the 1980s. So that's, I think that the gap between then and now is just really remarkable in that we've done so much with mills and pressure cookers or Cuisinarts. A lot happened in a very short amount of time. For some reason, we just can't seem to quite figure out how to get our cans open most effectively. Anyway, so that's the story for kitchen can openers. Now, remember though, that modern food preservation has its roots in military gastronomy. Prior to World War II, the U.S. Army was trying to figure out a way how to feed its troops economically and efficiently and decided that foodstuffs packaged in small cans was the best way to go. They needed to have something small and effective but mighty to open said cans that this was a necessity. So Army Engineering came up with what is officially titled the opener, comma, can, comma, hand, comma, folding, comma, type one can opener. This is according to How to Feed an Army by J.G. Lewin and P.J. Huff. But this is colloquially known as either a P-38 or a John Wayne. The blade folds up to keep it safe. There's a hole at one end. You can wear it on a cord around your neck. And it became basically a soldier's best friend. There are two sizes to them. The larger one earned its moniker as a John Wayne because the original training film on how to use them starred Mr. John Wayne. And the smaller is called the P38 because it takes approximately 38 punctures to open a can. They were originally issued to troops in 1942 and they are still a military inventory item today, although modern military MREs don't have cans in them. They're just packages that you tear open. But you can still get these little devices available on the internet. Wow, that is so cool. I love that they call it the John Wayne. And I think it's cool that they used him right. for the tutorial on how to use a can opener. The Army really brought Hollywood in a big way to help train, to provide morale. So yeah, there's been a long history of that. But yeah, I love the idea of it. The book actually goes into a list of like 45 things that you could do with that. But in addition to opening cans, it was like cutting fishing line and scraping gunk off your boots. It was effectively, this was Army Knife of the U.S. Army. Very cool. Yeah, next time I'm going to pop open a can, I'm going to take a good hard look at my can opener and, and really appreciate where it comes from. Right. And think about 
can I build a better mousetrap as its can opener? That's really interesting. First of all, we had this 50-year gap between even having a specific implement that was designed to open a can. And then once it was developed, it really wasn't improved on for... No, for quite, quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Check in with us in 50 years and we'll right. see what happens. <laughs> well, yeah. Interesting. That's cool. So the kitchen technology that I picked for today is also pretty low tech, but it's had an impact on holiday celebrations and birthday parties and even royal banquets. And it is the cookie or the biscuit cutter, depending upon Ooh. which side of the pond you live. <laughs> so molds for cookies and cakes can be traced back to ancient Egypt, 2000 BC. But the modern cookie cutter that we know today really got its start in the 15th century. And it was developed by German craftsmen who carved these really intricate cookie molds of men and women and animals. And then gingerbread dough was pressed into the mold and then it was baked, which I imagine was a very tedious and time-consuming process having to literally mold each of the cookies. Yeah, I would imagine so. Can you imagine standing for all that time too? Uh, no. So in comes another German carver who made this process a little bit more efficient by inserting a metal, which was generally carpet or tin outline into the mold so that it would cut better. Now, Queen Elizabeth was a gingerbread fan. She even had a royal gingerbread maker. Of course she did. Right? Because <laughs> right? why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Anyway, so as an aside... I think it's really interesting to see how monarchs or emperors, in the case of Napoleon, have influenced food culture. Yes. And in Queen Elizabeth's case, we posted this on social media, her influence on why hot cross buns are so prevalent during Easter and Christmas. You mm -hmm. talked about Napoleon, his influence on essentially the can opener. Anyway, back to the Virgin Queen and cookie cutters. She had cookie cutters carved in the shape of esteemed guests, which were then used to make gingerbread cookies for the royal banquets when these esteemed guests were at court. And it's really interesting to think about this. And we talked about this in our butter episode when we talked about Princess Kay of the Milky Way butter sculptures. And if you haven't listened to that episode, the Minnesota State <laughs> Fair has an artist that literally sculpts a life-size image of the dairy princess out of butter, like 90 pounds of butter. 90 pounds of butter. Yes. Anyway, I'm, I'm really not sure how I would feel watching people taking bites out of my replicated <laughs> personage. <laughs> right. And especially a queen with a record of executing over 600 of her subjects, most yeah. of them being nobles. And of course, whatever the queen did became very fashionable. So as the request for gingerbread cookies became more and more prevalent, English bakers started using outline cookie cutters rather than molds to help expedite the process. And this is where you start to see the separation of the cookie mold from the outline cutter that was inserted into the mold. And then with colonization came culinary traditions, right? So as we moved from Europe into these other colonies, they would bring their culinary traditions with them. The German and the Dutch immigrants brought to the colonies, these spiced cakes and cookies, and of course the cookie cutters that made them. 
And these mm-hmm. tended to be a little bit more intricate and the shapes included doves and cockerels and bald eagles. But as people started to move further from the metropolitan areas, especially in the American colonies, you had rural tinsmiths and peddlers that would provide homemakers with these cookie cutters that they had shaped out of scraps of tin. And the shapes mm-hmm. tended to be a little bit more simple stars and hearts. By the end of the Industrial Revolution, cookie cutters were being fabricated by machinery. And they were mm-hmm. a little bit more intricate than the ones that were made by the tinsmiths and the, the peddlers. And they lost mm-hmm. that homemade look. From there, you, you start to see other shapes that are coming into the culture of cookie cutters. And the one that I found really intriguing was the cookie cutters that were made in the shape of card, the playing card. What are those things called? Oh, the card suites or? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we had those forever and I could never understand it. But bridge parties were so popular. That makes so much sense. Yes. So now I understand. I get the the spade and the heart and the diamond and the club. I was always like, oh, well, it's a heart. But what about the rest of these? You can thank the popularity of bridge parties for that. All right. Thank you, popularity of bridge parties. <laughs> now, during the 1940s, we start to see these plastic cookie cutters. And do you remember the red and green ones? Absolutely. Yeah. Without a doubt. And they always seem to have these more intricate designs that were Mm -hmm. fused into the inside of them. But Mm -hmm. I was always so disappointed because they always seemed to bake out. (laughs) They would. I was going to comment on that. I would say I love the romance of of, an intricate cookie cutter that has a lot of interesting facets to it. But some of them are too narrow. And so your dough burns in certain spots or blobs out. And I don't know if that's the fault of the cutter or maybe the dough is not being properly, you know, refrigerated to handle. Oh, that could be. I don't know. Yeah. I never figured it out. I know. We'll have to talk to a baker about that. Those holiday, especially the holidays, those red and green ones. Yep. Candy canes and Santa faces and angels. Christmas trees. Christmas trees. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then the other thing, because of this mass production that you started to see, was flour and baking brands that were starting to Mm -hmm. include cookie cutters in Mm -hmm. flour boxes and flour bags and giveaways to promote their products. Yeah. This made way for many more promotional cookie cutters. Mario Brothers, Barbie, Looney Tunes, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You had this ability to take any type of a really popular pop culture thing and turn it into a cookie cutter. Because of that, you have this plethora of things for collecting, right? Mm -hmm. And cookie cutter collecting is big business. There's even an official cookie cutters collectors club called the CCCC that meets regularly And organizes the National Cookie Cutter Week, which is the first week of December, of course, the biggest cookie cutter usage month of the year. And there's a cookie cutter museum in Joplin, Missouri. Oh, heck yeah. Right? Me too. (laughs) Me too. Okay. I'll meet you there. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking about this idea of the cutters having modern properties. It reminds me of when the, the Mandalorian TV series came out and there's a character that for a long time people were calling Baby, Baby Yoda. Yoda. And I know that's not the official name of the character, but 
that people figured out that you could use an angel cookie cutter and modify it to create cookies that were in the shape of Baby Yoda's head. Right? Yeah. So it's interesting how we are using these tools to affect new ideas, right? New shapes, new forms, new promotionals, new new media. To that point, there is actually a cookie cutter that was developed by a Norwegian chemist. It's a mathematically efficient cookie cutter. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, because that was always the challenge. Yeah. Wasn't it? How, when you rolled out a sheet of, of dough, how many could I get out of this roll before mm-hmm. I would have to like effectively re roll? Wow, that was, that's some delicious history there. Yeah, I thought so too. I'm feeling a little inspired. I feel like maybe doing a batch of rolled cookies today. Yeah. yeah. Or, or frankly, just a good shortbread. That's kind of where I'm headed is maybe a lavender shortbread. <gasps> yes, please. I heard through the grapevine that you made yourself a cup of lavender green tea this morning. So. I did indeed. And it mm. was delicious. I'm inspired to actually go brew some tea too. So tea and cookie. Tea and cookies. Or tea and biscuits, depending on what's at the bottom. Or tea and biscuits. Okay, so I don't know what we have next. I do. I'm so excited to tell you. We are going to dig into Halloween candy. (gasps) That's right. (laughs) I'm so excited. This was a really fun topic to learn and to talk about. People get really ornery about their candy, especially at Halloween. Yes. And what we did discover is there is some of that orneriness between candy corns and Tootsie Rolls. Yeah. It's like a major showdown. There is. It was a major showdown. And we we talk about that. We sure do. Tell us, what is your favorite Halloween candy? For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing. We'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. Obviously.